Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Manash. This is the weekend edition where we interview notable people from the world of real estate investing. Today is no exception. We have a great guest all the way from Dallas, Fort Worth. Welcome to the show, Eddie Speed. How are you? I'm fantastic. Great to have you here. Eddie, for the folks who don't know you, why don't you maybe give a little bit of your backstory and how you got to this point in your journey? Well, in 1980, a 20-year-old Eddie Speed met a guy who later became my father-in-law, and he introduced me to the world of seller financing. He was a real estate investor, but he, we were actually buying seller finance notes. So I started, of course, if you remember, interest rates were super high, 20% yeah. interest. I started down this road from the 80s and 90s and stuff and like buying seller finance notes. But what I found out was I essentially found myself in a position to sort of be a coach for real estate investors of how they could do creative financing. I set up the note system for home investors in the early 90s. That's really been my journey. And I've now closed, oh, I don't know, more than 50,000 notes. Well, you're not just a rookie at this is what you're saying. Uh, uh, I tell people I'm not smart, but I am seasoned. There you go. So in today's environment, prices are very elevated, but still there are a lot of underperforming properties that are overpriced. And it's a funny market that we're in. What are you seeing as the strategies that make sense in today's climate? You know, I had this training business, Note School, and I would say in the past two years, I've had somewhere around 50% of the top 500 house buyers in the business and a lot of other people that have come. So why do they come to note school? They came to note school because they wanted to learn creative strategies to structure financing to kind of combat the people, the demand of people wanting such a price for their property. The theory is I can pay any price for a property depending on how I pay you, right? Sure. So as a, the more and more and more I got involved in this and I've been around most of what I think are the most regarded negotiation trainers for the top house buyers in the country, listening to the objections, listening to the customers and stuff, there's a segment of customers that is the most worked segment by far, and that is landlords. If you ask any house buyer that's doing a lot of business, they're doing a much higher percentage of buying houses from landlords than any other demographics they solicit. But what I figured out was, is the landlord they're chasing are people that have financial troubles. They're, they're chasing landlords that are getting divorced or they have a judgment against them or they file for eviction and blah, blah, blah. In other words, they're chasing a landlord that on the surface says that some life interruption has happened with that guy and he now needs to sell the house quick for cash, right? And cash means discount, right? And what I realized was I could show people how to chase a completely opposite side of the market. What is the guy that doesn't want to sell because he doesn't want the money? He wants to sell because he's sick of managing the rental, which, you know, small time investors dominate the rental property market. One to four family, 72% of the people that own the rentals or 72% of the rentals, that's almost 17 million properties are owned by people that own five houses or less in their individual name. It's not a hedge fund or a sophisticated investor like you, it's a, it's a hobbyist landlord. And they've been clobbered by the virus. Forbes came out with an article, call it a month ago, it could be in slightly more than that, but not much. They said that 8 million tenants owed $20 billion in back rent to small-time landlords. 
they're the ones that are absolutely hurting in this pandemic because they're the ones who have not been successful in getting rental assistance. The under 10% of rental assistance that was promised, having actually been dispersed, has left those landlords, that cottage industry, if you will, high and dry. 100%. But that's not a secret. Every house buyer in America that's doing any business already knows this. Yeah. So what I started asking these negotiation specialists, you know, a, a Steve Train type that like trains more high volume house buyer buying acquisition teams than anybody. I'm like, Steve, what, where's the market missed? And he said, well, the market's missed when the people don't need the money. They have a stress factor, but actually they don't want the money. They, in fact, they, what they don't want to do is get the money because they don't want to pay taxes. Well, that's exactly right. In today's environment, even though they're struggling, they're negative cash flow and they're probably tired landlord and all the rest, if they were to sell today, they're still going to make a hefty capital gain. So the idea is, is I'm teaching people to chase a lane that the house buyers are not chasing. I'm chasing a lane where people don't want the money, but yet they want to sell their house. So if you didn't want your money Victor, you could structure it to where you didn't have to pay taxes today. Right. Now that's simple for you and I, right? You're a very savvy real estate investor and you instantaneously know that I'm talking about the IRS ruling of installment sales. Exactly right. How many hobbyist landlords know that? Probably next to none. And they're thinking, well, I don't want to be the bank because that's another layer of complexity. I'm just getting out of being a landlord and tired of that. So I don't even, I don't want to be a bank because I don't understand the banking business either. They think they don't want to lend until they understand that it's actually to their benefit. It's to their benefit. And when they bought the rental, what they were really buying was a passive investment that would produce cash flow. We all understand in sales, you're guiding your customer in a direction that they would have never thought of unless you took them there, correct? Well, that's right. And what they were sold on was the myth of passive investing. And as you and I both know, a rental property is actually not a passive investment. It's an active business and you can invest passively in an active business, but it's still an active business. They were thinking they were buying a passive business, which doesn't exist. You know, Urban Institute ran two important stats. That is more than 50% of these investors do not have a mortgage and three quarters of them self-manage. You can stack a list. Everything about the house buying business, as we all know, is they stack a list, right? They take landlords and then they find problematic characteristics about that landlord. And that's the group that they solicit. People that have a judgment, or they file for divorce and, you know, all of those things that say distress. So I teach people that we're looking for the opposite side of that list. We're looking for the people that are so in so good a financial shape. They don't want the money. And then you say, well, here's, here's what you could do. You can defer taxes as far out as literally 30 years if you wanted to do that. You could defer them for 20 or you could defer them for five. Well, which one would you take? Would you defer taxes, Victor, for five years or 30 years? Well, it obviously depends on jurisdiction. For example, in Canada, the maximum deferral is over five years. And what you're talking about is, of course, in the United States where you can defer over much longer. Exactly. And in even five years, you can figure out a way to make it work, but you can certainly make it work in crazy good if you can do it for longer. So the idea is I use the breakfast analogy. You've heard the old story about, you know, breakfast and you've got the chicken and the pig. Mm -hmm. The chicken, he's involved in breakfast, but the pig, he's committed. 
Right. Yeah. <laughs> so the idea here is the pig in this story is the IRS strategy. The chicken is the seller finance strategy. So you've got a huge shift moving from like, it's no longer Victor that I'm asking you to carry terms. I'm showing you a strategy where terms have naturally got to be part of the process. That makes an awful lot of sense. So where do you meet these folks? Is it on the way out of the landlord tenant tribunal or where, where do you find them? Most house buyers that I know are stacking the list in some way. Some people focus on SEO marketing, but even with the new restrictions in Google and, and Facebook and stuff, a good info marketer can stack the list to people that have a high propensity to have been a landlord. Otherwise, you can, whether you're texting people or cold calling or mailing them a letter, virtually everybody in the business, you have to stack a list. You don't just go mail a list to 17,000 landlords, right? Right, right. You figure out certain characteristics of them, whether it's size or location, how long they've owned it, equity position. And then my deal is I want to make sure that I stack somebody that doesn't look like they're financially broke, right? which is the opposite of what everybody else is chasing. I love that strategy. It makes an awful lot of sense. So the marketing then becomes a curiosity strategy, a did you know strategy. That's genius. Then the other side is once you buy it and uh, it, it, there's some forks in the road, there is a strategy, actually a very profitable strategy where you can sell help them create seller financing to a good tenant. Or then obviously if they have a bad tenant, you take over the deal and they seller finance you. Now people are worried, well, I'm going to start committing to pay for this house and I've still got a bad tenant in there. No, what you would do is bake in a forbearance agreement that essentially means I don't start paying you until I start getting paid. Now you're inheriting their problem, but you're not committing to the cash flow until you get their problem resolved. Then the other side of the coin is, so Eddie, what are you going to do with this? You're going to, you're going to buy these and you're going, to, you're going to keep it as a rental or you're going to lease option. And you can do either one of those things. And it's a possibility you would want to. It definitely is a possibility. But I've, I'm a seller finance guy. Well, right now, people are, most people, you're not, of course, but most people, even in real estate, are sort of oblivious that we're in a housing boom and a credit crunch exactly at the same time. 30% of the people that could qualify for a mortgage before the virus can't qualify today. That's how tight the mortgage underwriting has gotten. So while there is not a lack of liquidity, the bar has been raised because the risk premium that's being attached to the current market conditions is basically raised the threshold. When you're a mortgage lender and you are looking at the portfolio that you're servicing, you're not quite as looking at it through as rose-colored glasses as a realtor. A realtor's commitment stops the day that they're at the closing. Mortgage lenders' commitments really starts. And so mortgage lending has responded and said, we're not sure that we're exactly buying into the trees are going to grow to the sky thing. And uh, they're, they're still making loans. Here, There's two interesting stats. Average down payment for a conventional mortgage, and this is according to Ellie May, who does more loan apps than any lender in the United States, Ellie May says the average down payment for a conventional mortgage is 19% down. I think that usually surprises people. So the other thing is the average credit score is like 786. What does that mean? That means that you have a whole pool of what we call penalty box buyers that have a good right. down payment and have good credit. They're not perfect. A lot of them, by the way, have some form of self-employed income, which has been butchered by this new underwriting system. 
and they're now the perfect candidate for seller financing. Absolutely. So you buy it and then you resell it on a wrap note. And the concept of wrap note is kind of like a sandwich lease. We can all relate to an Airbnb where you rent a piece of property and you pay a monthly rent you've agreed to pay. Then you rent it by the day for a lot more than your monthly rent. What you have is a wrap. What's interesting about that particular approach and where I thought you were going to take this was rather than simply selling the property to somebody else, what if at the end of the term you sell the note to someone who wants to buy that note? Well, obviously, the reason I learned these strategies was is I helped real estate investors create tens of thousands of notes, which I later bought, right? Yeah. And one of the strategies is, and this is probably too complex to get into today, but one of the strategies is, is you could sell the property to a good tenant. We figure about half the tenants are paying. You could sell it to a good tenant and the seller creates a note and you could mm -hmm. even earn a fairly decent interest rate and stuff. And then you could turn around and buy part of that note, probably the first, call it first quarter, first half of the note, which is the most taxable part of the note because you're collecting interest. Most of right. the principal comes on the back side of the note. Most of the interest comes on the front side of the note. And then they could sell that note up front, which is a strategy we call a partial, which lets them reposition how they take the money in because that sell of that note then becomes a capital gain. We've really zeroed in on, you know, obviously we, we're not giving tax advice. I'm not an accountant or a tax attorney, although you and I probably paid for a lot of that, right? But what we are is we're business people that know how to point to potential strategies that they can then verify because they're not going to, the customer's not going to think of this stuff on their own. Oh, not a chance. That's what makes us a deal maker, right? Yeah. Well, fascinating. Fascinating. I love the angle. I love the perspective of going in territory that is not trampled by the herd and looking for those opportunities that are just lying there latent and no one is focused on that particular space. I think it's genius. Funny thing is I've been doing this for a long time. I had a training business about 20 years and been doing this for about 20 years before I had a training business. And then obviously we're, we, I've stayed in the note space. So we have a training side of the business and just decide that we do all of these strategies that we talk about. And the truth of the matter is our business has always been driven by just realizing the voids in the market and the market's so hot. I think people sometimes think there's not a void in the market. There's a gigantic void in the market. Well, it gets you out of that auction environment where people are auction fever takes over and people are bidding up the price and everyone's paying too much. And so if you stay out of that auction environment and you can have a conversation directly one-on-one -on -one with a seller, that changes the dynamic completely. What's funny is, is most of the high volume real estate investors can't implement this strategy because the truth of the matter is the high volume investors have done better since this escalation in value. Most of the smaller volume real estate investors have done worse. That's generally the pattern. I'm showing a guy that isn't the guy that buys 200 houses a year to go do it. The guy that buys 200 houses a year, he has an acquisitions team, right? He has five, six, seven guys, alligators that go out there and chase somebody wanting to sell every day. And they are so busy doing what they're doing, they can't shift and pivot to this strategy. They get the strategy. They completely get it. They just can't shift to it. And so it's kind of interesting to me that I've helped people in all kinds of situations. You can even do a joint venture with the biggest house buyers in your market. And you're thinking, well, they don't need me or they don't want me and stuff. Trust me, they got trash can leads. 
and there's various strategies that people could do. And, you know, obviously I love teaching the real high volume guys and from being in the industry a long time, you like to know that you can teach people at that level and they feel like like they got something to learn. But the truth of the matter is they can't utilize this near as much as a guy that doesn't do quite so much business. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Eddie, if folks want to connect, if they want to learn more, what's the best way? If they'll just go to noteschool.com forward slash get started, and that'll take them to a landing page. And that landing page is going to have an ebook that I've written about this. It's going to have a little training that we're going to talk about more in specific and have some case study examples, some specifics. It's great to kind of hear the story today, but it's really good to kind of watch some whiteboarding and watch how this stuff unfolds a little bit. And uh, that's it. Just noteschool.com forward slash get started. Fabulous. Well, Eddie, love the perspective, love what you're doing. And for the listeners at home, definitely connect with Eddie at noteschool.com forward slash get started. And in the meantime, have an awesome rest of your weekend. Go make some great things happen. We'll talk to you then tomorrow.